Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Welcome back to another episode of the How I Quit Alcohol podcast. For first-time listeners, please be aware that not all of the conversations within this podcast are suitable for children. I'd also like to add a trigger warning that sometimes the conversations can get a little heavy. We may talk about things like sexual abuse, domestic violence, drug use and alcohol use. And if you feel that that may trigger you, please do not tune in. Also, I'd like to add, if you are a heavy daily drinker, please seek the help of a medical practitioner before quitting alcohol. This podcast comes to you from beautiful Bunjalung country. Please kick back and enjoy. Grab yourself your favorite alcohol-free bevy. And if you haven't already, do a gal a favor. Please subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. This podcast is proudly brought to you by Monday Distillery. Monday Distillery are purveyors of beautiful non-alcoholic beverages. Live on your own terms, be true to you, and drink what's good for your body and soul. Are you sick of feeling controlled by alcohol? Do you want to drink less? Do you wake up on a Sunday morning feeling really anxious and full of regret? I'm Danny Carr and welcome to my podcast, How I Quit Alcohol. Hi and welcome back to How I Quit Alcohol. Today, back in the Zoom room, I'm joined by one of the How I Quit Alcohol grads. Her name is Michelle McDonald. She's a training facilitator. She's also a life and sober coach herself. She's coming on to two years sober now. And we first met when Michelle joined my October 21 challenge and started her sober journey. She's a like she's just an amazing human. She was also in our messages from the bottle show. She was incredible. So I wanted to chat with Shell today. Do you I think Shell, you first came on the show episode 84? a while ago. So welcome back. How are you? I'm great. Thanks for having me, Danny. Always happy to be part of the How I Quit Alcohol family. Oh, it's so good to have you on. And obviously I see your face most weeks in the grads calls, which is great, but it's great to have you back here on the podcast because you've always got a beautiful message to share and you're a wonderful beacon of sobriety. Okay, Shell. So what I wanted to talk to you about 
today is your sober journey. Last time we spoke on the podcast, you were at about six months and now you're coming on to the two years of sobriety. And so I just wanted to talk a little bit about the changes that you've found and settling into life as a sober person and how that's been for you so far. It's been an amazing journey. I remember just busting to get to that 12-month mark. I don't There was something really poignant about hitting that 12-month mark and knowing that I guess that kind of first big hurdle you jumped over. And I felt like I had achieved a reasonable amount in that 12 months of sobriety. I had done a couple of podcasts. We did the Message in the Bottle show. But I did so much internal growth as well. And I came from that. I think the episode we did, we titled it I Am Enough Now because I went through such a long period of time where alcohol was what gave me my enoughness or I thought it did. So there was a whole journey in unraveling love for myself and understanding who I was and taking away that glass of wine and just becoming me. I did lots of things and I felt like I have transitioned beautifully from doing sobriety to being sobriety. And what I mean by that is you're very busy early on doing all those things to keep you motivated and grounded and and on the right track. And sometimes you're doing too much. Sometimes you're not doing enough, but you're doing. And, and there was a time, and I can't really pinpoint when it was, when I just started being sober. And it was really beautiful and calm and, and came with a whole heap of clarity. That's so beautiful. From doing sobriety to being sobriety, I think that's absolutely beautiful. And what a great way to put it. Tell me, had you done much spiritual work before? I knew you had done your life coaching course, but had you done much of the spiritual work before starting your sober journey? I touched on it, Danny. I always leant towards the woo-woo. I was always the, the one that put her crystals out under the full moon and everyone used to bag the shit out of me. <laughs> and I did lean into it, but I think you can only lean so far into things when you are pulling yourself back with this toxic part of your life. You can only fill your cup up with so much goodness and then drain it again with so much negativity. So I did lean into it and I had an awareness of it. I don't think I was really ready to sort of jump in that river of hippie mumbo jumbo. And I'm not saying that disrespectfully. I'm saying it because that's, it is part of who I am now. And it's, and it's really, it's what I lean into firstly and foremostly now, instead of the anything second nature or anything guessing or any, anything that I would need. It's interesting that when we're in that place, when we're kind of stuck in that toxic cycle, we can look at things that are actually beneficial for our healing as hippie mumbo jumbo where now it's it's the lifeline I really wanted to jump into that side of me I I guess there was an element that was you know that that real disconnect between what I wanted to consume mentally and spiritually and emotionally and what I was actually consuming which was the booze and all that negativity that came along with it so as much as I wanted to that the alignment just wasn't there I wasn't ready to take it all in at that given time. It's really hard to find that clarity though when we're in it, when we're stuck in that kind of in the fog and the bog of it all. And you talked about this in the messages from the Bottle Show, which people can listen to on this podcast channel as well. But talking about you were a daily drinker and someone that had the vodka going first thing in the morning, which is such a scary place to be in. I don't know if we talked about that on the last podcast that you came on, but what's that like, like to be there... I was chatting with Lyndall about this the other day, like, because I was never there. I was never the daily drinker with the vodka in the morning, unless occasionally, but not as a regular thing. How scary was that for you? And was it scary? Yeah, it was. 
I think it became a necessity and then the scare factor followed. It was always what I did. And I think I summed it up really well in that message from a bottle show in that the negotiations I had beforehand going into any given day was we're going to get through till lunchtime. We're just going to get through to lunchtime. Shell, it'll be fine. It'll be fine. And within 10 or 15 or 20 minutes, I talked to myself out of that and going, there's no way we're ready for that. We're not going there. And you know, ready for what, Shell? Sorry. Not ready to not start the day with a drink. So what time were you starting to drink? Oh, look, at the at my worst, I would get everybody off for school and then probably about 8 o'clock, 9 o'clock. When you're there and you are at that point where it's kind of declined enough that you're drinking at 8 in the morning, like, do you go, what the fuck is going on here? Like, those negotiations aren't working anymore. What's that like to be in that place? It's like being in a, a mental cyclone because you know what's right, but you can see it coming. You can just see this mess coming your way. And, you know, I wasn't drinking at eight o'clock in the morning every day for my whole drinking thing. But as I got to the end of it and then in the lead up to joining your group in 2021, yeah, I, I was. And, and I'm okay to, to say that because that was the fact around it. And I think that reckoning and not hiding from it and not being scared to be honest about what it actually was and where I was at, which was a pretty fucking low place, even though the facade and the image and the optics of who Shell was were, were totally different. And and that just gave me another layer of disconnect. It was just like the disconnect was getting further and further and further. So you would have the guilt, regret and shame cycle in the morning, getting out of bed, that kind of stuff. And then you'd have it again as you poured yourself a drink. And it was never ending. It was just this, you'd have a brief little glimmer of, um, after your first sip, maybe, then you were just, you just knew that you were on that shit show of a slide that that was going to be Tuesday. And then hoping that Wednesday would be different and then hoping that Thursday would be different. And they just weren't ultimately towards the end. They just weren't any different. Well, did anyone know? Did your husband, James, I know you guys are pretty close. I, I think he knew to a certain extent. I was pretty good at presenting what I wanted to present to the world. And I think when I finally came clean and I was pretty adamant if I was going to do this, everyone was going to know about it. And not because I wanted it to be all about me, but I wanted there to be a lifeline for anybody else out there that needed to see that life could change. So yeah, Jimmy would have known to a certain degree, but I used to try and sort of sober up enough by the time everyone would get home in the afternoon. So you would look normal-ish. I'm sure I didn't. And now when I see people out and about and you think you're all so glamorous. <laughs> with the sober person that I am now, you can you can see the loudness and the red cheeks and the, the slurring and the stumbling and that kind of stuff. So you're not really fooling anybody. Yeah, absolutely you do. Did you have withdrawals or anything like that when you first stopped? Surprisingly not. I was anticipating them and I did talk to my doctor before I joined the program because I just, just wanted to do it fucking properly. Just wanted, I, I think... Even though joining your group, I didn't really know what I was going to do with it. I knew I was going to do the three months, but I wasn't sure where I was going to sit at the end of it. I think I've said a few times before, I'm kind of all or nothing. So I jumped in with great gusto. So I did it a healthy way and a, and made sure that I was in a place to do it. So no, I, physically, I didn't have headaches or DTs or anything like that, which mm. came as a bit of a surprise. Mm. It's lucky. Yeah. 
but certainly had the habitual withdrawals or the habits that you form when you do it and, and those sorts of things. But when you learn other practices, you start to break the old ones or they become less powerful in your life or you, you start to see the amazingness that you can do. I was at the gym the other morning and I looked up and the sunrise was just stunning. And I'm like, did it always look like that? Like, <laughs> was I missing something? And I was, of course I was. But I love those little moments, those little glimmers of how amazing life is. It's such a huge leap from where you've been to where you are now. It's absolutely massive and it's something that you should be so proud of. And I always think about people like yourself and other people in the challenge that were daily drinkers that have come so far. And I think about Lyndall, you know, at times where she came from and, you know, having to go to hospital to deal with her withdrawals. And I think, wow, you guys can do it. Anyone can do it. Like anyone can do it. What do you think you need to do it? I think you need to want to do it. And, and that sounds really simple, but that's quite a layered to say, I want to do it. And then actually do it is two different things because we can want lots of things in life and, and, and not achieve them or not get there. I always felt, Danny, that there was more for me and I just wasn't sure how to grab it. I always felt like I was just on the cusp of something amazing, but I couldn't quite claw my way there and I couldn't quite see it or reach it or smell it or taste it or touch it. And I wanted to stop drinking. That was what I wanted to do firstly. And that was my primary goal. And then I wanted to get to know myself. I wanted to be happier and to be healthier and to be spiritual and to be connected. And so what my want was to start with has evolved and grown and changed along the way. So I think there's not really one size fits all approach to someone wanting to make that first step. I think ultimately you need to have enough of a commitment to yourself and to you, where you want to be and your own potential, that you just start taking that one small step because it, it is that one small step. You don't just jump in and all of a sudden it, it's all Doritos and strippers. It's it's not how not how it works. But the little steps all add up to that. And I think there's a real power to be able to look back and, and go, oh, I have achieved this, this and this. But my sobriety journey is filled up with teeny tiny magical heartbreaking, beautiful, poignant, fantastic moments. And that's what you got to want. Having the hope that there's going to be these magical moments and the possibility that they're there and just believing that they're, they're there and they're available to you. Because sometimes when you're so stuck in it, it doesn't even feel like it could be a possibility. But this is a great thing. You're a living testimony that it is possible, which is amazing. So how have you found now transitioning from being coached, I guess, to being the coach and to being able to use your life experience to help other people, which is so awesome? The journey obviously has made me a much better life coach and moving into the sobriety space is, I'm obviously practicing what I preach, so that's number one. It's opened my eyes up to the spectrum that is sobriety and the spectrum that we come from when we enter into sobriety. Everyone has their own take on what sobriety is and what it's going to look like. Similarly, we all come from a different drinking experience. Like at the end of the day, we, we present with the same symptom, but what's behind that symptom mm -hmm. is so very different. And the treatment without sort of sounding more medical, the treatment can often be very different for very different people. And I think it's really tapping into what has led to those symptoms in the first place, because usually it's not just I need to stop drinking. It's I need to love myself more. I need to be in touch with my inner child. I need to heal. I need to do this. And I think 
if we can find what caused the drinking, we can usually find some process of healing around how to make your sobriety journey a successful one and a really spiritual one. Absolutely. It's like what Gabor says, Gabor Mate, he says it's not why the addiction, but why the pain. And so trying to kind of get to the bottom of what is driving this, what's driving this addiction, what am I trying to escape from and what am I so uncomfortable with that I need to escape from. Oftentimes it's not even alcohol that's the issue here, even though it's become a bit of an issue or a large issue, but it's, yeah, it's finding what's kind of driving that. And if we can find that out, then we've kind of got a bit of a chance to start the healing process and, and figure out ways that we can soothe whatever that is without the booze. It's a big, beautiful journey. And it's so great that you're able to give that and offer that to people from that lived experience. Like when chatting with Lyndall, and when I've talked about her relapse program that she runs and she's you know, has great success with people who have relapsed and, and have done her, it's just a 30-day program. But she's a great person to go to if you've relapsed because I haven't relapsed. So I'm not probably the person to go to if you've relapsed. Like I can certainly help people. I mean, I relapsed in the sense that I tried gazillions of times to quit and it didn't work. But she was someone who'd gone from real strong sobriety to big ass relapse and then back out of it again. And she got herself out of there through her own processes and through AA. It's great for someone to go to someone like her who's lived that experience of for someone that's a daily drinker to go to someone like you who's lived that experience of the daily getting up and drinking the vodka. That wasn't me. That, that wasn't my experience. So I can't understand that as fully as, say, someone like you can. And there's different ways in which that we can approach different things. So it's really important to also think about who you're going to work with. Perhaps when you're starting a journey, it's good to think about their lived experience, what they've done, how they've got through, and ask the questions of the person that you're going to lean into for help. I think it's really important. Yeah. So I love to like talking about that really, really doing sobriety at the start. So doing all the things and how that looks for you. And it's very busy. <laughs> right. Okay. Yeah. And it is, it is really busy, but then transitioning into that beautiful place of being sobriety. And I love how you say that. And there's a real acceptance with that. I feel like when I say that I drop my shoulders and my body relaxes and it's just, yeah. And so how is that? Talk to me a bit about being sobriety. It's become the life that I'm living, but being sobriety for me is really living this life that's full and it's mindful and it's compassionate and it's caring and it's really looking at what I'm doing in this moment and what that's going to impact the people around me and my path moving forward and probably sounds a little bit woo-woo, but it's kind of become a way of life. It's how I am existing. And when I think back to the doing sobriety, which wasn't a bad place to be. And I said earlier, it was, I was very busy because I was trying and you do do all the things. You're jumping in and doing all the different practices, journaling, breathwork, yoga, whatever you can do to not drink, you are doing it because you're just, this is what I want to do. And it's interesting. I remember having a phone call with the beautiful Michelle French when she was at about the six month mark and she rang me and said, Shall I'm just doing all these fucking things. How many things am I meant to do? And I just said, just don't do what you don't want to do. Do what starts to work for you. For me, I really needed that sort of checklist of sobriety to provide some foundations of discipline and commitment and to start to embed some processes in my life that gave back to me. In being mm -hmm. I think those things come very naturally and I don't often stop and think, what do I do on a daily basis? Because it's sort of ingrained 
very organically into how I'm living and who I am. I do try and filter it out. I've got two, a 21-year-old and a nearly 17-year-old, and I do try and get them involved in a bit of the woo-woo, but it's, <laughs> it's a different battle. But I think that being sobriety for me is, is really been about finding the true shell and finding where I want to be and just how far I can go knowing who I am and what, and what I've got. Everything that I bring to the table now is mine. It's me. It's what I'm standing by. I'm okay if I'm not their cup of tea. I couldn't give a fuck. Like I'm just happy with where I am and what I've come from, where I've come from. I would never have been able to accept a compliment like the ones you've given me about being proud and, and, and everything that I've achieved two years ago. It just, I just, it would have just fallen off me like Teflon. There's just no way I could accept that. But I know what I've done and I am really proud of what I've done. And I'm even more proud that it's, it's a bit like throwing a stone in a pond. You have this ripple effect and you start to influence or motivate or gravitate towards other people. And that's really a beautiful connective moment when you realize that, that this was my story, but it's actually bigger than me. Absolutely. It is bigger than us, isn't it? It's so much bigger than us. This one comes up often when people are early on in sobriety and they're feeling like, oh, fuck, can I do this forever? What do you say to people that are feeling, or what would your advice be to someone who's feeling like, oh, I'm, I'm freaking out. I'm feeling fearful towards the This is going to be forever thing. But don't give me the one day at a time thing. I want a different <laughs> perspective. It's interesting because I had this conversation with a friend the other day who had her milestone was 12 months. And she was really that last six or eight weeks, very in her headspace around what is this going to look like when I hit that 12 month mark. And I remember having a conversation with her and I said, well, what do you want it to look like? And she said, I wanted to do 12 months. And I said, well, you've, you're almost there and you've done 12 months. What do you want the next time to look like? And I didn't put a milestone on it. I didn't say 12 months, six months, two years, whatever it might be. I just said, what do you want the next time to look like? And she said, I want it to look and feel like what I'm doing now. And I said, well, then that's all you need to do. You just what you're doing. keep doing what you're doing and our journeys change and evolve. So what we did in our first three weeks, six weeks, 12 months is going to be really different to what you do in your second year. And I'll only imagine what happens in the third and fourth years. So I think your journey evolves, your healing process evolves. And if you don't want to put numbers on it, don't put numbers on it, feel it, live it. It's not dissimilar to you know, when people get fixated on the fucking numbers on scales when they're weighing themselves and things like that. There's so much more to living a healthy, holistic life than just the numbers on a scale. There's things like your skin, how you're feeling, your energy, your sex drive, all those sorts of things. I don't think sobriety is any different. We can choose how we want to measure and what milestones we want to kick as we move along in the journey. So I didn't say one day at a time at all in there. No, you did not. I'm so proud. <laughs> not that there's anything wrong with one day at a time. Uh -huh. I do believe that's really helpful as well, particularly at the start. But you're right. It's about, yeah, how do I feel right now in this moment and how do I want to continue feeling? And so what's the feedback I'm getting by what I'm doing and do I want to continue that? I certainly know that at the end of mine and Ash's 12 months when I decided I didn't want to go back, but it seemed too scary to say I'm never drinking again, which by the way, I've never actually said, even though I'm 99.9% .9 sure I never will drink again because like you couldn't pay me to touch that shit. 
because I've gained so much from it. But I just kept thinking, I know I don't want to go back to where I was before. And I know the first, the quickest way to get back to where I was before was take a drink. So that's off the table and just keep on pressing forward as I am. And so I just said, I'm just a non-drinker. Going forward, I'm just a non-drinker. I'm not putting a time frame on it, but yeah, I'm, I'm just a non-drinker. I don't drink. And just started saying that. No, I don't drink. It was like so cool to say that. Like, wow, this is awesome. I loved it. And I could really say it with conviction then too, after that 12 months. And probably then too, for me, was like you say, like that was probably the turning point of being sober too. Yeah. Love that, Shell. Love that. It is power when you own what it is that you're doing and how you name it or frame it is entirely up to you and your journey. We had that amazing call while you were on your Danny and Ash's big adventure with Lissy Turner. And we talked about our language around how we describe our sobriety. And everyone's is going to be different, but how you stand in that truth makes all the difference. If you're wobbly in how you describe yourself, then that label might not be for you. I'm really comfortable in saying I'm sober. Mm-hmm. Full stop. So what do you say if someone offers you a drink? Sorry, just someone that doesn't know you or has just met you. What do you say? I'll either say I don't drink or I'm sober. And depending on the person and depending what mood I'm in, if I want to have a, a, a funky conversation. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I either, if, if I'm out and someone offered me a drink that I didn't know, I would probably say I don't drink, but generally I just say I'm sober. Yeah. So cool. Amazing. So looking back at how far you've come, which is just so remarkable, like being in that kind of the fog and the bog of the daily drinking to where you are now is so much like clarity and freedom and confidence and being a sober coach and all these things that you do, like looking at that those stark differences which isn't that long a time like 18 months is not that long but it's amazing how much you can achieve in that time if you just kind of dig into it and accept and yeah just go in balls and all which is what you exactly what you did like looking at those differences how do you feel where you are now from where you've come from I look at it with a great sense of of accomplishment and and a great sense of pride but also the way I approach things and the way my thought process is now is really, really different. I don't feel like I'm carrying this heavy, heavy mental load of drinking. And I think Lyndall puts it beautifully when she says, we don't have a drinking problem, we have a thinking problem. Like we carry that load of not just about what am I doing and how much am I drinking, but when can I have one? Have I got enough? Who's going to drive? Who's looking after the kids? All that mental load of being a very consistent daily drinker is heavy. It's really heavy. And I think one of the things I started to notice was just how quickly my shoulders started to come down. I didn't have this backpack of just fuckery that I was carrying around and holding on to. And, and I think too, because I was sort of presenting this version of me that wasn't necessarily an accurate version of me, I had that that I was carrying as well. So there was no wonder that I couldn't really achieve what I wanted to achieve because that mental load was just like, going off so that's been massive in terms of clearing room for really important things or more growth or more education or being that person that is the one that connects people or helping out with the grads group or or giving back it just has opened and freed up a space in my life and my brain and my heart that I can fill with really good stuff and I want to fill with really good stuff yeah it's amazing isn't it and you look at how much space it does create in our lives. It's so phenomenal. Such a gift. 
I think one of the milestones, you know, we talk about days that we've not been drinking for. If you actually look at the hours of what you get back, you know, I think a lot of the apps will tally up how much cash you've saved and how many days, but you can actually put in there the hours that you've gotten back. That can be mind blowing when you think, if you were someone that like me, that towards the end was drinking a good solid six to seven hours a day, that's a massive amount of time. Absolutely huge. And not only that, dealing with the fallout as well, all that morning before you started again. You know, yeah. yeah, you lose that time in recovery and then your old mate guilt, regret and shame pop in to say hello and they take up a bit of space and then yeah, the time piece is huge. How much do back? Absolutely. So one thing that you're particularly gifted at within our grads group and outside in the greater world as well, outside of the grads group is connection. And you are really great at connecting people. You run lunches up in Brisbane. You organize the grads to get together. You just, you're like the little social queen that organizes all the stuff. And it's so awesome. And I love how you're actually getting some of the Brisbane crew to come down for some of the events we've got going on down here, which is so cool. But how important is connection for you and your journey? Connection for me has always been a massive part of my life. And I think for a long time, I needed it as almost a bit of a distraction. I needed to be surrounded by people. And even in conversations with my mum about how I was as a child, she was like, Shell, you always had people around you. You always were that conduit. We grew up in a little cul-de-sac, not dissimilar to where you live. And we had all kids all around the same age. And I was, I was the one that was like, right, we're going to have a tea party. We're going to go and do this. We're going to go and do that. So I feel like it's in, in my DNA, but certainly as I moved into the challenge and I joined that challenge with you and there wasn't anybody up here. So I was immersing myself in this, not drinking, but I didn't have people to touch or to feel or that were tactile or that we could feed off or that, that even had experience under their belt that you could say, Oh, is this normal? I'm feeling this or I'm really teary today or it wasn't there in a connectivity sense. So I just created it. I just was like, does anyone want to have coffee? Does anyone want to do this? Does anyone? And I just, I just had to build it. I did it for me initially. I did it because I needed to be able to have some people around me. And I was so excited when every time we got a new influx of grads into the group, there'd be more and more in Brisbane and Sunshine Coast and the surrounds. But the importance of having people in your life that understand where you're coming from, that can empathize with what you're feeling, that are there for you, that provide you with some scaffolding or a really solid foundation. And I had the support of my amazing husband and my boys and, and my greater family unit, but they've not been there, Dan. They've not lived it. They've not breathed it. They've not gone through the process of what it is to remove a socially acceptable worldwide toxic drug and be those circuit breakers in life that are like, I'm not doing this anymore. So connection for me, you, I, I couldn't have done what I've done without being as connected as, as I am. And that started off with one or two people and then it's grown and it's grown. And we have a regular group up here in Brisbane that meet every month. We have a, have a catch up. And yeah, we've gone down to Brunswick. We went down to support the beautiful Libby at her show towards the earlier this year. We're coming again to see Lissy at the Bender. And it's amazing. I love it. I, I wouldn't have it any other way. I really wouldn't have it any other way. And I, I know how important it is. And I bang on about it in the grads group. <laughs> because it is. 
It's so important. And I think when people start to disconnect is usually that first little step into the sinking sand or that person needs, needs some help. Yeah, it's a real slippery slope and it's one that's really important to be aware of so that if we are starting to disconnect from people, that sneaky little thing can come in all sorts of ways where we start to pick the shit out of other people or we start to get a bit judgy or we look for occasions to become offended about the people are doing. That's all the start of this great unravelling of becoming disconnected or I don't like what that person does, so I'm not going to join that tonight. That's just our little subconscious trying to keep us unwell. And Lyndall and I chatted about this recently where if people do kind of slip up, it's usually they disappear first. And so when she had her relapse, she pulled away from me, she pulled away from her sponsor, and that's the sign, that's the warning sign. But usually it's sometimes it's too late, unfortunately, once someone's got to that level. So it's really good to notice in yourself with kindness and compassion, well, yeah, I'm noticing I'm starting to distance myself a little bit. I'm noticing that I'm starting to create reasons in my head not to join in or not to connect with people and just be aware of that and then perhaps just name it to yourself and go, okay, now I'm going to make an effort to actually join in now. It's the, definitely the, one of the first things that goes is our connection. If you're in a community, don't underestimate the power of reaching out and asking. It might not be the right time and I'm sure you would have reached out to Lyndall however many times to say, honey, are you okay? What's going on? But the reach out is really important and forms part of that trust thing. And having people around you is, it's not just accountability. In fact, I don't know that accountability even comes into it for me. It really is that compassionate connection, that knowing that if I go quiet for a little bit, someone's going to say, Shelly, are you okay? And sometimes we don't want to hear it either. Of <laughs> course I'm okay. Yeah, exactly. But it's like they know, they know. But it, what's really important too is to speak up for yourself too and to notice if you are sort of slipping away to try and reach out to someone who you trust and just, well, just have a phone call. Like just, you don't even have to say I'm noticing. I'm sort of just reconnect, reconnect yourself. So yeah, connection is absolutely everything. I really do believe that. And we don't want to start isolating. As soon as we isolate, not good, not good. So you're amazing, Shell. If anyone wanted to reach out to you for, say, coaching or to catch up on one of your catch-up things that you do, what's the best way for them to reach out to you? They can find me on Instagram. My handle is at the Sober Connection, and I regularly put up there the social events and, and what's happening uh, in there as well. So that would be the best place to, to reach out. Amazing. And I will also put links for all your contact details in the show notes if anyone wants to reach out. Yeah, I could highly recommend Shell. She's amazing. She's an amazing human, an absolute firecracker and the owner of some really amazing sparkly pants, which you need to see. <laughs> you should wear them for our bender. Oh, I think those, I think uh, Brunswick's sick of seeing those sparkly pants. <laughs> They'll be like, has she not got another pair of pants? Come on. <laughs> not have anything else. I love those sparkly pants. I think you, I, I want them. They're amazing. I think you should hand them around to all the grads. I will. They can be like a, uh, like you know, when you have those sticks of, when you can talk, the stick of talking, they'll be the the sparkly pants of, I don't know, something. Yeah, or a milestone. They get the milestone, they get the sparkly. You can bring out your own sparkly pants. <laughs> oh, now we're on to something. Oh, Michelle McDonald, you're an absolute gem. You're a treasure. I'm so glad to know you. You're inspiring. You're just a beautiful human and you're just a, you're just a gem absolutely love your work 
And it's just great to have you on board and have you in this little world that we're in, this little cyber world. Yes. No, thank you. Thanks for having me back. And I wouldn't be here without the likes of you and, and the amazing program that you run. And yeah, I love being part of it. And uh, yeah, I agree. It's a, it's a great little sober world that we live in and, and people should join it. It's not as scary as they think. No, it's freaking cool. Cool as. <laughs> awesome, Shell. I'll catch up with you soon. All right. Thanks, Dan. See you Sunday. Yeah. Bye. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full important safety information, visit juviderm.com.